You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And with me this week is Michael Farmer in Sandy Springs, Georgia. How goes it, sir? Uh, It goes very well, David. Excellent. Also with us is Matthew Block in uh, not Swan Lake, but Swan River, uh, Manitoba. How are you, sir? I'm well, I'm well. I didn't have it written down. I feel proud of me. <laughs> yeah, without it written down, you got it on the second try. Good job. <laughs> well, but, you know, I corrected mid-course. Like, it was a self-correction. You know, I actually tacked live, as it were. One and a half times. <laughs> uh, well, before we get into this week's topic, uh, what's on the network? Is anyone using the calendar? I'm not using the calendar. There was a Christian feminist podcast this past Friday on the Book of Esther. I listened oh, yeah. to it. It was good. Cool. Other than Can't that, other than that there's obviously nothing on the calendar. Uh, but you <laughs> did a uh, you did a out of network podcast. Do you want to talk about that, David? Yeah, I uh, was interviewed by really a, a friend of a friend, um, the the gentleman that I teach uh, Sunday Sunday morning Bible study with. Uh, ha, is also friends with a uh, the the host of a, a relatively new podcast called Between the Creations, which is sort of a, a theology, uh, Bible, philosophy um, po- uh, podcast. Um, she has her own her own topics that she enjoys pursuing, and she has guests on. Um, but anyway, she she found out uh, from him about my dissertation, which is about the creation song in Beowulf and, uh, theologizing with literature is something she enjoys. Um, the role of narrative in Christian theology and Christian living is something she, uh, she's interested in and, uh, literature is something she's interested in. So, uh, she invited me on and I got to, um, for once in my lifetime, have someone sincerely ask to hear me talk about my dissertation. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that. I thought it was surreal to hear anybody ask sincerely <laughs> about anybody's uh, dissertation. Yeah, it was uh, – when I got the email, I was like, huh. What, what kind of scam is this? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was actually a really fun conversation. Um you know, naturally, uh, for 40, uh, 45 minutes felt short after doing regular uh, hour-plus uh, podcast here. So it it, it, it would take a lot of energy. Um, and uh, I, I hope, you know, it was mostly coherent. It sounded coherent to me. And I didn't know what your dissertation was on beyond Beowulf, so I learned something. <laughs> cool. Also, I recorded a, an upcoming Profiles episode. It's not scheduled yet. I still have to record um, uh, an intro for it. But uh, with a new book by Holly Ordway on Tolkien's modern reading, turns out he read a lot of modern books um, and, and had thoughts about them. And, yeah. So we don't know when that will be out, but it will be out eventually. Yeah, yeah, the book's out. The episode's not out yet, but it'll be out uh, just just as soon as I can get uh, the intro recorded and it gets edited and all the rest of it. So uh, today's conversation, we're going to be talking about really it's it's a classroom text. It's a bit of uh, of classroom uh, curriculum that we're going to be looking at 
but it's you know something like a thousand years old. It's the Colloquy uh, by Alfred of Insham. Uh, just brief little note: Alfred of Insham is someone that we mentioned before on a previous uh, previous episode in which we talked about uh, one of his homilies. Um, he was the student of uh, a scholar named St. Adelwold, uh, who was a bishop of Winchester. And uh, also a couple of years ago, I did an interview with the translator of Adelwold's Old English Rule of St. Benedict. So uh, Alfrich is the student of, uh, of the guy who was really concerned that monks in England have access to the rule in their in their vernacular. So we should not be surprised that Alfred is himself um, a great educator in the vernacular. So Alfred was a 10th century theologian, Bible commentator, homilist, educator. Uh, eventually he was an abbot. Um, he had a, a wide-ranging and a lot of it surviving um, uh, letter writing, uh, correspondence uh, is is the term for that. Uh, and yeah, so he also is an educator of children, uh, particularly within the uh, the context that he was most familiar with. But Michael, what is that uh, that other context that the colloquy is presenting to us? Yeah, so um, there was not, as far as I know, universal public education uh, in the in the 10th century, and so instead his students were novitiates, uh, which you might think of as baby priests or baby monks, uh, and they were learning Latin for their church duties. So we're coming out of the 9th century, uh, which is the century of the Vikings, when learning would have declined precipitously in England. Mm-hmm. So Alfred is part of a restoration of monastic learning, and Latin would be obviously a big part of that restoration. Vatican II uh, was still a millennia, millennium off, and so the masses were still being conducted uh, in Latin exclusively, maybe just mostly, I, I don't know. But the, the point is a, a priest would have been expected to learn Latin and a monk even more so because part of the monk's jobs were, were, was uh, copying these uh, these old Latin manuscripts. So knowing Latin would be very helpful there. Uh, in terms of what the colloquy was used for, if any of our listeners have taken a foreign language class, especially when in high school, they're probably familiar with the basic structure. No doubt they remember uh, the silly little dialogues in their Spanish textbook. Uh, mine was called Paso y Paso, which I only remember because <laughs> I somehow ended up keeping it after I graduated from high school. Uh, but but you remember these dialogues. Enthusiastic Spanish teenagers would talk about going to La Biblioteca and, uh, and Los Policulos. This is very similar, except that libraries and movies didn't exist, so Alfrich is addressing them in the world they came from. To some extent, what they're saying is less important than the fact that they're saying it, and so you're reading it in Latin or in an English translation for us and learning the language. And and for that reason, there's there's a lot of little lists of things, lists of birds, lists of fish, you know, stuff that seems kind of stilted. Uh, the dialogue is certainly not meant to be, uh, you know, lifelike. Uh, it's it's a it's a teaching tool. Uh, one thing that would be less familiar to our our reader listeners, I think, is that the students didn't just read this for comprehension; they were expected to memorize it. Uh, which I was not expected to memorize those terrible dialogues in my Spanish book. I'm glad to say, um, but if the students didn't memorize this colloquy they would be beaten uh, and i know we'll talk about that in just a minute so for now david just let me know what i've left out of alfrich's classroom one of the cool things about uh about this is that mu- much of the use of latin as you emphasize for for the for these novitiates they're training for this future use of latin in liturgical contexts especially or in the context of of reading older uh, older surviving works of the classics or the church fathers or whatever um but this colloquy is not at all about right it's conversational latin 
Yeah, which which I found um, for at first when I read the colloquy, I'm like, oh, you know, it's pretty basic, you know, and I'm learning another language to talk about things that I know. But then if you sit, kind of sit back and think about it, that's actually really weird. You know, the degree to which Alfrich expects them to see this language as a living language um, that they can use to think about and converse about the world that they're in, not merely as a kind of a what you might call a scholarly language. Right. Um, you know, a research language. Well, you know, David, <laughs> supposedly, I've not been there, but supposedly in Vatican City there is an ATM that uh, offers Latin translation. So you can take your money out of the Vatican Bank using Latin instead of Italian or Spanish or whatever language you speak. That is most excellent. Have you considered how weird it is that we're reading this not in Latin, but in a, a rather um, breezy English translation? It, it's just kind of weird. Like we're, <laughs> we're reading this text in a way it was never meant to be read in, in a way. In fact, it is completely useless for its original purpose. It would be like, yeah. it would be like a thousand years from now, somebody finding Paso y Paso, uh, a Spanish speaker finding Paso y Paso and reading the little dialogues to determine what life was like for Spanish teenagers in 1997. <laughs> I'm not sure they'd get a very good glimpse of it. Well, you know, I, I, I'm thinking that maybe... Man, these guys love particular... the library. Right. <laughs> I'm, th I'm thinking maybe this text is a little bit closer to the realities that it presents. Than, I don't I don't uh, know that it is, though, David. I mean, if you if you think about no. it, those, those dialogues in your Spanish book or whatever language you took are... Uh, it's the sort of thing teenagers in the 1990s would have been interested in, but they're they're talked about in a way that nobody would ever talk about them. And I, I do think you're getting that here. I don't, you know, you're the expert. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know anything about the Middle Ages, or I don't know enough to uh, to, to bloviate about this. But it, it does seem to me that the the artifice of this is um, amusing. Well, there's one big difference here um, in your Paso y Paso. Paso, paso. Uh, text. step and step. Yes. In that textbook, you are an English speaker learning Spanish. And so the, the, the little sketches that are presented to you are things that look more like your life hmm. than like the life of necessarily, you know, uh, someone, someone of your son, of your same age in, you know, any given, um, South or Central American country that is in Brazil. Um, on the other hand, this text that we're looking at here was meant to teach Latin to speakers of the ancestor to our language, Old English. So it's not presenting to them the lives of children in Rome. Yes, that's it, fair. Yeah, so so it is pre it is meant to be presenting them the things that they know, and yeah, it is it is written it it is pre written it is it isn't, um, you know their own uh, unprompted musings about their own life, but this is one of the very few texts that we have that addresses some of the thing some of these aspects of this culture. I, I should say by the way, I'm not complaining. I found it a delightful uh, a delightful little dialogue. But uh, the weirdness of it did not escape me. Like, what we're doing here is very strange. Yeah. But it, it's even funnier when you realize that, I mean, the dialogue was written to teach Old English speakers how to do, how to understand Latin. Yes. But today it's primarily used because uh, there's an Old English gloss of, of the colloquy. So people who are studying Old English read this primarily, not people <laughs> studying Latin. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the big routes into uh, Old English language and vocabulary are surviving Latin glosses. Um, you know, Old English, you know, Anglo-Saxon monks or priests or whatever who were, you know, a little rusty in language. Um, and, and so they were sort of very carefully sort of scribbling out a word-for-word -word translation in the margins of things they were working on. Um, official kind of lexical texts, certainly, but also sort of unofficial things like um, the gloss on this colloquy um, has been one of the, one of the, the really important sources for um, building the Old English vocabulary because you could – it's sort of the Rosetta Stone. 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, Michael talked about the flogging, Matthew, and uh, incidentally, it is the students uh, who are begging to be taught and agreeing to be flogged if they don't memorize. So, <laughs> a, a, no doubt, an entirely accurate picture of medieval students. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, completely, uh, completely unprompted. Um, what on earth is happening in that exchange? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, as, as we're hinting at, I mean, the, the dialogue is written by the teacher himself, Alfred, so he can make the students say whatever he wants them to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're probably not meaning those lines with their whole hearts. But uh, what the text does, in fact, is model for the students what an appropriate um approach to their studies would look like. Um, it, it's modeling for them the appropriate virtues, if you want to put it that way. So by reading the responses that are here, they're playing the part of diligent students in order that uh, in time they might actually become diligent students. So, I mean, Alfred has the students say, we're ignorant and we speak badly. And so there's this uh, taking on themselves um, a recognition that they don't know everything, they need to be taught. And uh, yes, they're already presumably using Latin already to some extent in their daily lives, uh, in the singing of the liturgy during the daily offices, for example, so maybe also in some reading. But uh, that's not what they're here to learn exactly. They're not here to just memorize Latin. Uh, they're not here even just to read it uh, with understanding, they they want to be able to be fluent in it, to converse in Latin, to talk in, in daily life. And to this end, the students have to to recognize that they that they uh, should be pursuing this goal, um, even if it was to mean that they had to be punished, to be flogged. Um, I mean, obviously, the the master has included this little caveat that he's very kindly and that he won't make strikes upon the students unless they oblige him to do so. So it's if, if they do get beaten, it's really their own fault, not not Alfred's. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, again, I mean, obviously, there, there is a, a bit of a warning here from Alfred. The students should, should not uh, be unattentive. Uh, they shouldn't be deliberately foolish or base in, in what they're doing with what they learn. Um, that's explicitly something that he makes them say that they're 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 trying to be useful, not foolish or base. And even though the dialogue that follows here is is fun and is actually kind of funny at some points, the students aren't there primarily to be entertained. They're there to learn, and if they shirk that responsibility, there will be consequences. Um, that might mean the switch in Alfred's classroom, but even today there are consequences if you shirk your studies, whether it's lower grades, detention, or, or whatever. Um, so in all of this, as I say, I think the colloquy is, is modeling an appropriate approach to studying and then having set the stage, the teacher can move on to the main part of the lesson. Um, what else do you see that's happening in this exchange, David? I really appreciate the, the that phrase, we would rather um, we would rather be flogged than to be foolish is, is essentially what they say. And um, I'm not saying, dear, you know, dear listeners, that this is the this is the educational reform that we need. <laughs> but he's not not but, saying that either. <laughs> but the, but that attitude, um, that attitude of of, you know, becoming wise is worth taking pains. Right. Maybe not those necess those pains necessarily. But uh, it, it is it is worth um, embracing the discipline. Um, the the hardship involved with learning um, is 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 something that is that is worth doing. Um, foolishness is something that you sh that that you should be willing to uh, uh, endure some kind of constructive hardship in order to um, move beyond it. Um, I, I find that that attitude to be something that. I need in my life. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I've got, you know, I've got a, a number of pieces of paper from from colleges and universities in my rearview mirror, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't have some foolishness um, that I need to be disciplined out of. 
um, and that I don't have some wisdom to gain. So uh, whenever I, I read the beginning of this, I, th- I, th- I think of, of the degree to which I need to put myself in the place of this scholar. Well, there are many trades and vocations discussed in this colloquy. As uh, we said earlier, this is uh, Alfrich teaching them language with which to talk about the world they know. So uh, what are a couple of your favorites? I think a lot of these are a lot of fun. Michael? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the workers who admit to being lazy or cowardly. I'm thinking of the fisherman (laughs) here. The fisherman admits that other fishermen hunt whales uh, to great profit. But he's too afraid to do so, so he stays in the lakes and rivers that you're used to. Um, And this comes right after the hunter talking about how brave he is to kill a wild boar that's rushing right after him. And the fisherman's like, not me, guys. (laughs) Appreciate his honesty. Also, the fowler, who doesn't really seem to recognize what a cad he is, he lets all his birds go every summer because it would cost too much to feed them over the summer. I think of... I think of falconers as having a very close emotional relationship with their birds. I don't know if that was the common opinion in in the 10th century or not, but that one um, that one did surprise me and delight me, I suppose. I also enjoy the counselor whose job seems to be mostly simping for the plowman and totally ignoring <laughs> all the other tradesmen who point out, hey, you know, the plowman wouldn't be able to get anything done if we didn't do our jobs first. He listens to them and then just completely ignores it and says, well, the important thing is we all agree with the with the, everything the plowman says. <laughs> I wasn't sure what the counselor's like actual job was. Yeah, let me. Um, is he like a job counselor, like a job coach? No, no, no. He's just telling uh, everybody not... to become a plowman. No, the um, I'm I'm looking for the the precise line that that the the counselor shows up in. Unfortunately, the text that um, the text that we're looking at don't have good uh, don't have good line uh, line attributions. Well, yeah, here it's uh, it's line two oh six or so. Okay. Well, monk, you who speaks to me, I have found you to have good and extremely necessary companions, and I ask you, who are they? I have smiths, ironsmiths, goldsmiths, silversmiths, coppersmiths, woodworkers, and many other and various craft workers. Have you any wise counselor? Certainly, I have. How would our gathering be guided without a counselor? And then that's when the teacher asks the counselor, "What's the mo- what's the superior job?" Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so my impression reading through this is that the counselor is, um, is a, a, a Witan. Um, the, the, the Witan, uh, is the counselor for the king. So the, the idea is that, uh, a king rules, um, with this, uh, sort of board of advisors um, who are the kind of the, the, the wise old graybeard elders um, who give him policy advice. Um, but also when the king has died, it is the Witan that, um, that has a, a, a voice in guiding the selection of the next king. Good news for um, the plowman, huh? Yeah. Well, the the rule of of uh, inheritance passing to the firstborn uh, was something that came in with the Normans. Before that, uh, in the the various kingdoms of Angles and Saxons and whatnot, um, the English before the Norman conquest, uh, it wasn't always a settled thing that the eldest son of a king uh, would necessarily be that king's successor. It could just as easily um, go to another son who was considered more competent. It might pass on to a brother or a same age cousin. Um, in some cases, it even punted back to an uncle. Uh, and the the Witan, uh, the the the, the counselors had a, a role in that. So, I, I, I my 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 impression is that that's that's the guy that we're that we're hearing from when the master speak or when the uh, the counselor speaks, something like that. It's, is Alfred's meaning to show him to be kind of a blowhard? <laughs> um, I don't know. 
I, I, I've, I've kind of read, I've, I've sort of read the, the Weetong, the, the, the counselor's lines in this as, um, meant to be ones that we are to regard as wise. Uh, there's not, there's not always a whole lot of irony in, uh, in old English stuff. Um, I mean, it's the counselor who says, what say you, wise one? What art do you see holds the first place among us? And the counselor says, the service of God holds the primary place among the arts, as we read in the gospel. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, you know, the counselor's first um, first recourse is, you know, to the words of the gospel. So, you know... I mean that that would be. Uh, I I would I would think that probably we're meant to be taking the taking the counselor um, at his word, so to speak. Not necessarily to see him as blowhardy, um, particularly given that his job actually is using words eloquently in order to influence outcomes. I don't know. I mean, did you, do you think there's more there going on? Am I being am I being naive about my discipline? <laughs> I, I just think it's very funny that the all the Smiths stand up and say, "Hey, you know, he couldn't do his job if we didn't do ours," and the counselor's like, "Yeah, but <laughs> he doesn't even really seem to listen to them." He says, honestly, companions and good workmen, let's stop this flighting quickly and let there be kinship and agreement between us and let one help the other through his craft. And to agree always with the plowman from whom we have our food and fodder for our horses. <laughs> so that's, that's a little interesting because the other translation that we were looking at said, let us meet the plowman. It doesn't actually say agree. Ah, um, so it, well, meet the plowman is much less funny than agree with the plowman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> come, come to terms with, I think, is, is something... Something like what we're supposed to see there, and that may also be one of the counselor's jobs, is to serve as as a mediator um, and a uh, a conciliator between um, between parties, a negotiator. Well, I like my my way better. I enjoy the text more that way, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> what about you, Matthew? Who, who do you like hanging out with? Um. I think I'd maybe highlight here the, the baker and the cook uh, because they're kind of a funny part in the in, in the colloquy. With these two, the master starts to get prickly, and he hasn't really done that with the other trades, not very much. So the baker, he expressly asks, like, can we live our life without you? And so the baker is put on the defensive right off the beginning and says, well, you could, but not for long. or You wouldn't enjoy it. Um <laughs> But with the cook, it's interesting. He's The master is so confrontational with him. Instead of addressing him directly as he's done to all the others, he, he instead he's talking about the cook. He says, what shall we say of the cook? Do we in any way have need of his craft? And, <laughs> and it's just, it's like, yeah, we're not even going to address the cook. But the cook defends himself. You know, if, if you didn't have me, you wouldn't have any cooked food. You just have raw, raw meat, raw vegetables. But uh, the master says doesn't take much stock of his defense. He says, well, we don't care about your craft. It's not necessary for us, since pretty much anyone can cook and roast food. And uh, I found that kind of interesting. So I was doing a little research in advance of the episode today, and I learned that uh, from a 2013 article in, in the journal Anglo-Saxon England, uh, and it, that article is basically arguing that the Anglo-Saxons of this period had a primarily utilitarian approach to food, that they didn't have a concept of cu- cuisine or fine dining of any kind. I don't think the British really did the until the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if this is the case, I mean, you can understand then why uh, Alfred doesn't really, or the master, I should say, doesn't really care much about the cook anyone could do it but even if that article is totally untrue i have no idea um th- we have to remember this is a, in a benedictine context and uh, the rule of benedict's pretty clear about what kind of food a monastery should be preparing it's two meals a day and each meal consists of two cooked dishes probably mm-hmm. it can't have four-footed animals um 
they might have bread at one of the meals a little. Um, so it, it's supposed to be very simple, very sparse. And if that's the case, again, it, it brings up what good a cook would really be. And in the and in the rule again, I mean, it it uh, explicitly says that the monks should take turns cooking. So with all of this kind of context, you can understand, I think, why the master doesn't take too much uh, of an opinion of the cook. That all said, I, I find it fun because the cook does defend himself again. He's, he says, you know, if if you don't have a cook. Everyone's a servant. No one's a master. And I think there's actually a bit of truth in this that we might miss if we're reading this. The preparation of food at this point in history is is very long, very tedious. That's particularly true of the baker's work. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a documentary um, where they were talking about 12th century life in France and uh, the discussion of just how long it took for a normal person to make their daily bread was staggering unless there was a mill nearby and there were hardly any at this point. Um, then a person would have to spend multiple hours every day just grinding grain to make enough flour to make the daily bread. And uh, so you can see what he's saying. You no, know, everyone's a servant. No one has time to do anything except the cooking. Um, granted, it's a, mon- it's a monastic community. The the situation would be different there when you have many hands to to do these kinds of things. But I I don't think that the cook is wrong to to point out that you can't be free. Uh, You'll all be servants unless you have a cook. But I'm carrying on a little bit about food right now, and I think it's because it's getting close to supper here. So maybe I'll I'll just cut it there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I feel like I need to speak up a little bit for... Uh, for our farmer, you know, our plowboy who goes out at dawn and drives the oxen in the field, you know, uh, I dare not lie at home even in the sphere in the severest weather for fear of my lord. Um, you know, I have to plow a whole acre every day or more. You know, so imagine you know getting up before the sun and making these oxen you know help you till like you know cold frozen ground. Um, you know, uh, helped by a boy who drives the oxen, uh, and he sh- he has to shout to get them to run uh, to 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 move, with the result that he he loses his voice in the cold. Um, I mean, it seems like pretty miserable work, uh, but this is the one that the counselor says. You know, if this person, if this guy doesn't doesn't get up and do his 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 hard, thankless job in the morning. None of us eat. And the cook seems to be making a similar kind of point. You know, all of these other vocations um, can only be done with the time that is won by the fact that someone else has devoted their time to these other things. Um, and as as monks or priests who are, on one hand, giving their lives to... Um, the thing that the counselor says is best to also remind them of uh, what they owe to others is, I think, a useful thing. And that appreciation for uh, everyone's work in the society is something that I really feel connects back to our conversation, Michael, about uh, Leo Thirteenth and uh, that that particular um encyclical uh so would you want to say a little bit about the vision of the society that the colloquy presents to us and how the how the worker and the work are relating to each other here and whether what thoughts you think leo might have about this i I think he would largely approve of the of the structure we have here many many of the workers appear to be in charge of their own labor uh, there are a few exceptions. The shepherd mentions that he is faithful to his lord. The hunter works for the king. But I think Pope Leo would approve of those exceptions, too, because the hunter mentions how well the king takes care of him. And the shepherd shows the opposite side, the loyalty of the worker to the boss. So even the ones who aren't in charge of themselves have a good working relationship with the people who are in charge of them and who, let's be frank, have way more power than they do. Um, You have the merchant who is kind of proto-capitalist. He sells his products at a profit so that he can feed himself and his family. There's no 
there's no implication that he's gouging the prices or anything like that. This is this is something he has the right to do and something he's doing. And then also the hunter doesn't work on Sundays, uh, which which Leo would certainly be in favor of. Um, one thing he would not approve of is that the plowman works all day without any free time, as you mentioned, David. Uh, the 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 plowman is being overworked. I think uh, I think Leo would agree. Um, I also don't know that he would love all the workmen arguing about which job is the most important, but you know that's all in good fun. One other interesting point: <laughs> the counselor, as you mentioned, says that the service of God is above all the other crafts, which suggests that such worship is itself a craft, which is definitely not how we think of it. Um, that, that somehow what the monk is doing all day in that monastery is roughly akin to what the fowler is doing out in the woods or what the plowman is doing out in the fields. That there's not a there's not a white collar, blue collar distinction, I guess, is, is how we would describe it today. So did this colloquy just sort of back its way into a doctrine of vocation from the other side? Probably. I, I mean, I, I think... In some ways, Rerum Novarum is an attempt to reproduce the good parts of medieval labor in the contemporary world. I mean, that's why he's so big on unions, right? The guilds are gone. The unions are the next best thing. Mm -hmm. Cool. What do you think, Matthew? Anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think I think you guys have really covered it pretty well. I, I like what Michael has to say, and I think his analysis of of uh, the topic vis-a-vis Rerum Novarum is spot on. Excellent. Well, because I'm always remembering previous topics whenever I'm prepping a new one, uh, I, was, I, I couldn't help thinking as I was reading this uh, colloquy of our episode last week where we talked about, um, well, other people whose whose work is uh, very much in the natural world, um, and uh, at the mercy of it, essentially. So, how would you characterize the natural world as it's presented in the colloquy, especially in light of uh, our, our discussion last week of of uh, the lamp at noon? Yeah. Um, well, last week with the Lamp at Noon in Sinclair Ross, uh, we got a depiction of the world as this place that doesn't really care about humanity. It's, it's not necessarily malevolent towards us. It just doesn't care about us at all. Um, in Alfred's colloquy, we get a very different view of the world. Um, for us, the world betrays our faith, but here the world supplies our needs. It's a gift from God that provides us with everything necessary for life, though there is the, the potential for danger. Um, we've seen with the, the boar and the whale, um, and it's not handed to us on a silver platter. If you like, we still have to work for it. Um, all of the trades in in the colloquy engage in some way or another with the real world. Even even the merchant who has to traverse the ocean, um, and the craftsmen get their raw material from the earth or the forest. The food is drawn from the forest, from the waters, and from the land. Uh, so the world brings forth its bounty in a way that is harmonious with the needs of people um, and is is uh, reaped through the through their diligent work. Uh, I, th I think the Fowler is actually a, a pretty good description of this, uh, of this harmony between man and nature. So he can take a hawk from the wild and train it to catch small game and the bird will um, find food for itself as well as for the hawker. But as it grows and gets more mature, um, this hawker, who I'm assuming is is a lower class person, lower in society. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I'm assuming that's why he's not saving his birds all year long. But in the spring, when the hawk has matured somewhat, he can release it without worry because he knows he can just get a new one in the fall. Uh, the forest will provide more hawks for him. But the forest doesn't just provide for him. It's also providing for the bird which he releases. Um, he, as I say, he can't, he doesn't want to look after it over the summer. I, I, I'm not sure I took it quite as negatively as Michael did, but I think it's because it's it's just too much of a strain uh, to look after at that point for him. But released back into the wild, the bird will sustain itself anyhow, because it no longer has to look after the needs of the hawker. 
So for the fowler, then, the world is this gift from God that is ample to provide the necessities of life to both humanity as well as to, to animal kind. And um, this kind of story, it, it's not exactly a commentary on scripture, but it makes a, a pretty nice parallel to some of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, where he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Um, is not life more than food? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So we see God uh, looking after both the hawker or, or the fowler, if you want to call him that, um, as well as the the, the bird itself. Um, he's showing care for all living things, all living things in the world he's made, and that trust in the goodness of God, that trust in the world he's made to provide, I think is is present throughout the whole colloquy. As I say, there's there's a recognition that there's hard work involved in reaping the rewards of the earth, um, that there's the potential for danger. But uh, apart from these things, it is still true that God is providing for us through this natural world. That's nice. What, what would you add to that, Michael? Just that there is very little romantic attitude toward nature romantic with a capital r the early 19th century mm, movement mm -hmm. and i i think because of that it can it can read as a little um oh i don't know transactional or something i, I don't know the best way to say it to to post-romantic readers like me what, what do you mean Nature is not a place you go to commune with the world or commune with God. It is a it, oh, it is a, yeah. a tool given by God to be used for the benefit of human beings. And it's just a, a different way of thinking about it than the dominant way since uh, since the 19th century. But it's you know, also not that Francis Bacon strip mining attitude toward nature either. There's it's it's a right. it's a it's a viewpoint that's more or less foreign to us. You know. There's a way in which all the all the trades here are at the mercy of nature in a way that that sort of Baconian strip mining view that you talk about um, that that kind of view wouldn't really be sustainable by these characters. That's true. Yeah. Um, there's a boar out in that forest. Um, he cannot own the hawk. He has for a temporary time the use of the hawk to aid him in getting food, but he has to give it back to the wood before winter because he doesn't have the means to feed it during the winter. Um, so that there's there's a way in which yeah, there is a, there is there is a a utility to the to that relationship. But the the relative power balance isn't isn't there for uh, a total domination, so to speak. Um, also, there's a way in which these characters are in nature. Nature is not a place they go to. Um, it's a place that's kind of always around them. Um, so yeah. I mean, for, for me to see, for me to go into the wood and see a hawk, I'd have to, you know, kind of Google where the closest sort of wildlife preserve is. Right. Um, for for him, it's like that hill over there. <laughs> You're you uh, you would see a lot more of them than you you think you would if you knew what you were looking for. I there that's, there that's there are true. hawks uh, circling overhead overhead right now. I'm sure. Um, you you just. You know they they don't want you you you're not used to looking for them and they're not particularly intent on you seeing them but they're there. Hmm. Well, towards the end of the colloquy, uh, the students declare that they wish to be wise. So Matthew, in the context of this colloquy, what does it mean to be wise, and what is the relationship of that wisdom? to a lesson of grammar and vocabulary. I mean, aren't we just going to talk about the Bibliotheca? <laughs> <laughs> well, here in the colloquy, we, we first begin to learn what wisdom means um, by first hearing what the students do not mean by the word. So they say they don't want to be like the brute animals. 
and I'm interpolating here a bit, but they, they want, in other words, to, to be human, to have understanding of the world they live in, their relationship to God and to one another. Um, and the key to that understanding, of course, is in language, which is why they have to learn to be diligent students. But of course, language can also be used in negative ways, as we all know. So the master asks them again what kind of wisdom they're seeking. Um, he asks, are, are they just looking to master language in order to lie or deceive in clever ways, to be sophists, in, in other words, um, to be these whitewashed tombs which look good on the outside, but inside are full of stinking decay? Um, and that, that ties back to, to a statement at the very beginning of the colloquy uh, in which the students proclaim that they wish to practice and learn Latin in order to be useful, not to be foolish or base. So what do they mean when they say they wish to be wise? Uh, the student explains. He says, we wish to be simple without hypocrisy and wise in avoiding the evil and in doing what is good. So they understand intellectually what it means to be wise, but they don't really know what that looks like in practical terms. And it's at this point that the master leads them through a discussion of what they themselves are called to do as monastic initiates or novitiates, um, how they pray how they observe the services, how they are to obey uh, those in, in authority, how they shouldn't gossip about the shortfalls of their brothers, how they should eat and drink in moderation and, and things of this nature. He's telling them, I think, that to be wise is to fulfill the duties and obligations of your vocation. The counselor had said a few lines earlier, whether thou art a priest or a monk or a layperson or a scholar, practice thyself in this, be what thou art. So just as the various professions that we've explored in the colloquy are called to exercise their trade diligently and uh, with a recognition of their own uh, necessity and utility to the wider community, so too the students should approach their trade diligently. And as students in this Latin class, their trade then is to be good students, to be attentive to the teaching of their master, to learn the vocabulary and grammar, to memorize the text as they are supposed to. They, uh, they should also remember that their work, simple as it might seem, uh, is still intended also to benefit the wider society. Their studies are also useful. Um, just as the fisherman, the baker, the plowman all benefit others, so too the students through their training uh, will one day benefit wider society, especially the society of the monastic community and we've already we've already um, noted it I think but uh, the counselor who who is all described as wise twice by the master uh, says that um, says that this service to God really is the primary thing of importance in wider society he says I say to thee that the service of God holds the primary place among these arts so by learning to, to be diligent in their studies, learning to um, pursue their monastic vocation, even though they're just no, novitiates, um, to pursue it diligently, they're learning to be wise, but not necessarily wise just in, in book smart, but wise in, in the way they live. That's good. It is good. That's I, I really appreciate the way you 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 bring out that the discourse doesn't end with um, the lines where they're sort of explicitly using wisdom language. It spills out into the master, you know, the master leading the scholar into talking about giving thanks for his food and mm -hmm. eating in moderation, not like a glutton, and you know, rising early when he's called without waiting to be chastised, and you know, that all of those things are images of of what wisdom is for him in in where in in the place that he is, being who he is. Is there anything that you'd add to that, Michael? Uh, a question for you. Um, it seems that beer is a drink for anybody, but wine is a drink only for the wise. There must be some cultural thing there that I don't know about. Um, what is it? Um, so beer or ale um, is more probably probably the, 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 the closer word. Um, was not always... Uh, 
at this time very alcoholic. Um, most uh, most people would not drink just straight water. Right. The guy says he drinks water if uh, if he can't find any ale. Yes. Uh, people had discovered by experience that drinking something that had a little bit of alcohol content tended to be better for you than just drinking straight water. Um, Still for true. reasons that are, yeah, for reasons that are more explicable now than, <laughs> than would have been then, you know, now we know where things like dysentery come from. Um, so most folks, uh, ale, um, what they call small, small ale or small beer, um, would have been the ordinary drink for, uh, children and young people, uh, at that time. Uh, and its alcohol content would have been negligible. Um, wine, however, was very clearly alcoholic, and it was also something that would that would need to be imported. So um, that uh, that reference to you know I'm not rich enough to buy wine. Also, it is for elders and for wise men. That is those who are. Uh, those who are able to handle themselves um, in the drinking of wine under the influence of wine. Uh, as uh, we should not be surprised that the wisdom tradition of uh, the culture that we're looking at here of Anglo-Saxon England, like the, the Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible, um, much time is spent on what it looks like to be wise in relationship to permissible inebriates sure, sure. <laughs> so yeah that's that's what's going on there so he, he it's not just you know you, you don't don't imagine a bunch of little monks sneaking out to the parking lot with a six-pack that's that's not what he means i mean still the best beer in the world is brewed by monks so it's not like they're against beer and uh, right, let me right, tell you exactly. that ain't a uh, small beer <laughs> Almost certainly not. Uh, so, what else is worth talking about in the colloquy? Um, some other ideas, or maybe other texts that you uh, found connections uh, to this as you were reading, Michael? Yeah, um, the counselor advises all the craftsmen to quote, "Be what you are, because it is much humiliation and shame for a man not to want to be that which he is and that which he should be." That is Plato's definition of justice in the Republic. Uh, so I, I found that fairly interesting. It's kind of a, uh, a, a kind of an earthy way to say what Plato says, which is, uh, it turns out that this doing one's own work, provided that it comes to be in a certain way, is justice. It is the power that makes it possible for them to grow in the city and that preserves them when they've grown for as long as it remains there itself. All of this assumes, of course, that the role you've landed in in society is the role you're meant to occupy. Plato takes care of that by... Uh, you know, the, the guardians assigning roles to people. Uh, Alfrich doesn't. It, it just seems that whatever role you are, you, you kind of land in in society is the one you're meant to have. And it is unjust, foolish, uh, not wise to to try to change that. So, um, yeah, that's what I noticed. How about you, Matthew? Um. I mean, as far as parallel texts go, it's probably useful for for someone who's interested in looking at the different uh, occupations and vocations of of the medieval era at Alfred's point to compare it to the similar kind of list of occupations that appear in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, especially in the prologue. You get them all yeah. kind of described quickly. Um, other books that you could maybe look at as as an interesting counterpart to some of the things here, you might, some readers might want to look at the book of St. Albans, which is a 15th century text. And it kind of describes, um, it describes hunting, hawking and fishing. And uh, you may also want to look at Isaac Walton's complete angler from, from the mid 17th century. Um, It's interesting, I think, to look at some of those texts simply because they, they talk about some of the trades we've talked about here, but there they're talking about them more as an art, as uh, something as for, of leisure for the middle and upper classes. 
um, than they were trades for the common people. So it's just an interesting kind of comparison of how fishing can be something very different for the fishermen than it is for the gentlemen of uh, 17th century England. Um, one last thing I might say is, if you're going to read the colloquy, look for some of the humor. We've we've highlighted it. Uh, the, the fisherman who's afraid to catch the whale, that's funny. The master who's sparring with the cook, it's funny. Um, and it reminds me that humor can be a very useful tool in encouraging students to keep uh, on with their studies. Um, I can't help but think of just a, one silly example from my own language studies back in the day. I was in a Latin class and the professor was choosing students at random to translate the next sentence in the story. So I was trying to keep a sentence or two ahead because you never want to be called on and <laughs> not be prepared. Just look dumb then. But, uh, <laughs> so I was reading ahead and I had enough time to notice that one of the upcoming sentences could be translated in, in two different ways that would be grammatically correct. And the sentence was, I think, it was something like gigante saxa ingenti in nos cuniciunt, which, uh, which uh, well, I was, as it happened, called upon to translate that sentence. And I correctly translated the text, and I said, the giants throw huge rocks at us. But before the professor could move on, I quickly added, but it's also possible that it could mean the huge rocks are throwing giants at us. And uh, it really could because of the way the endings work in the Latin. <laughs> As the, the, there's just this pause for a few seconds of the class, that laughter for the students. And the, the professor just looks at me with this deadpan look and then carries on as if I hadn't said a thing. <laughs> but... Uh, that little joke was for me very helpful because it, it's to this day, I still remember that, you know, the nominative and accusative plural um, for third person and for second person neuter declensions are, are identical. And it's just this dumb rule I know because of this dumb joke. <laughs> Man, Latin is too complex for me to learn it. That's for sure. Well, I, I've forgotten most everything else from Latin, but that rule I happen to know, so... Burned into your soul. Yeah. But, and I think, I mean, Alfred shows a, a recognition that humor can be a very helpful tool in keeping students interested. I mean, he doesn't just have them reciting forms here, although I'm sure there's some of that in his his grammar. Uh, but this there's a dialogue. It's conversation. It's interesting. And it's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's delightful. We will, dear listeners, uh, include links to uh, the the text that we've been using, um, at least uh, the one that's uh, publicly accessible, um, so that you can you can read the whole thing. And there's there's a there's a number of of, of people, a number of trades, a number of little moments that uh, we haven't gotten to touch on. So uh, by all means, dip into it. Uh, another text. That I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Canterbury Tales, Matthew, because it reminded me too of uh, Pierce Plowman, which has uh, a moment that's uh, similar to the to the counselor wading in and telling everyone else they need to listen to the farmer, they need to agree with the farmer because they depend on him. Um, Pierce Plowman, uh, as the title seems to, as the title indicates, uh, puts at the center of of its story and at the center of its presentation of kind of late medieval um, English society, the figure of the plowman or the farmer um, who in some kind of bizarre way is kind of the primal nobleman around whom society is ordered. Everyone else in the society does what they do so that the plowman can do his work and sustain all the rest of him, all the rest of them with his labors. Um, so there's, there's, there's something about that, that, uh, seems to, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe have lingered a bit. I don't know if Alfred is responsible for what later becomes the ideas in Pierce Plowman, but certainly he's, he's a, 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 a contributor to that stream. You know who the plowman of the 21st century is, right? The lineman. Who? The, for the county? Uh-huh. Well, yeah. The Wichita lineman. There's the job everybody else depends on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that is all that we have time for today. 
if you got any feedback on this episode, dear listeners, you can send it to uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or you can post it on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org. Uh, when they show up there, we're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter uh, at CH Radio Network. I've enjoyed this conversation, gentlemen. Thank you for, for joining me in, in visiting a text that uh, has been kind of one of one of my favorite favorite little corners of my own discipline for a long time and uh, helping me see some things in it that I hadn't otherwise seen. What are we doing next week? We are talking about a few poems by our most recent Nobel Prize laureate, uh, Louise Gluck. Oh yeah, I, I used to teach a number of her poems regularly, and then went, and then now I teach from a different anthology. <laughs> awesome! I look forward to that. Uh, well, dear listeners, uh, this has been uh, this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, which is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Michael Farmer. And I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Matthew Block saying, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>